Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. So this is week nine. This is the last one. For those of you that were here last week, last week was raunchy. Very raunchy. Here's my promise. It's not going to be raunchy at all. It's going to be G-rated. I've already had a couple of parents come up to me and say, hey, this is going to be really, it's going to be safe, isn't it, Rob? Like, yes, it's, it's going to be safe. I'm not going to use the S word again tonight. I hope. But it will be G-rated. It'll be safe. It's going to be good. So we're ending that tonight. And then to let everyone know what's coming up over the next couple of months, we're leaving some series as far as we won't be doing any series for the next little bit. Next week, we've got Nath Martin preaching. Who's excited about that? So Nate's going to be preaching next week, and then we're going to just have some general series as far as people just coming up and preaching what God's placed on their heart to minister to us, which I'm looking forward to, through to Peter Sukra coming in July, and then in August we've got some other guest speakers coming as well. So looking forward to that. That's what's coming up. So who thinks we should pray? Yes, I think we should pray. So let me, everyone, bow your head, close your eyes, do what you're meant to do in church. Because it's meant to be a holy place, people. All right, so let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you, Father. First and foremost, that you are good. I thank you that you love us, Jesus. I thank you that you love marriages, Father. You love relationships, Jesus. You love friendships, Father. And you desire, God, that we have a friendship and a relationship with you, Jesus. And I pray that what I share about tonight, Father, surrounding marriage, God, and surrounding relationships, Jesus, I pray that What it does is it challenges us, Father, to strengthen our marriages and to strengthen our friendships. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So, one of the things that we've been talking about over and over and over again through this series is this communication. And it doesn't stop here. For those of you that have been a little bit challenged, perhaps, with the communication, my encouragement would be this. With your husband or with your wife, whoever it is, as far as if you're a wife, obviously it's your husband and vice versa. Can I encourage you, if you're struggling with anything, communicate. If that communication is difficult, my suggestion would be this. Get some outside help. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your marriage at all. It just means you want to strengthen your marriage. So I know for some people here, there's been a bit of a struggle with communicating together, and that's fine. But my encouragement is don't end it with, we're just struggling to communicate, so we're not. My encouragement would be, come and see myself or one of the elders. You don't have to counsel with us, but we will direct you in the direction of someone that can help you out with some counsel, talking through things, uh, mediation, that sort of thing. So communication is important in a marriage. And so marriage can be this. It can be one or two things. It can be enjoyed or it can be endured. Like you can enjoy your marriage or you can enjoy your marriage. It'll only ever be one of those two things. Very rarely will a marriage sit in the middle. Relationships can be put in the same basket. They'll either be enjoyed or they'll be endured. And they're normally called your acquaintances. And so when it, in relation to marriage, a marriage that's enjoyed generally looks like this. One where both parties, both partners, deliberately use every situation, circumstance, whether good or bad, to draw closer to one another, to draw closer together as married couples. You could equate it back to friendships as well. Friends that grow closer together deliberately use every circumstance, situation, whatever is happening in their life to draw closer. Obviously not physically closer, just emotionally closer. 
And that ultimately is the whole reason that we're wanting to do this series, to bring up some issues in our lives, to have some prickly conversations so we can have the opportunity to draw closer. For those of you that haven't noticed it yet, but at some point you will in your lives, generally the best opportunity to draw closer with your spouse, with your friends, whoever it is, is through hardship. It's through hardship generally we find who the other person is. It's through hardship that we bond closer together. It's through hardship that God does something through our lives. It's through hardship that joins us closer together. And so marriage will be one of enjoyment or it'll be one of enduring. And the choice ultimately is ours as to whether we want a marriage that is enduring. Enduring being we're just living together, we're tolerating one another, but we're not really enjoying life. We're not really enjoying marriage. There'll be parts of enjoyment, but the general gist of it won't be. Or the other one obviously is enjoyment. And the purpose of this series has been for three reasons. The purpose of it has been to strengthen marriages, to see old marriages refreshed, to see rocky marriages strengthened. And this last one, which I'm pretty excited about, to see future marriages flourish, which I would like to say that it's a byproduct of this series that y'all got engaged, yeah? <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Only if you win next week, the Love Run series. Just so you know, when you got engaged, I nearly made you do it again. Yeah, you were expecting it. You know me too well. The key um, feature in all of this as far as whether your marriage endures or it's enjoyable will be this. It will be communication. When situations turn up that aren't favorable, if you don't communicate, it'll end up at some point being a marriage that is endured. But if you communicate, it will be a marriage that's enjoyed because you're both dealing with the mess. You're both working through it together. So we're going to launch into it. We haven't got much to go through today. It's only one chapter today. Looking forward to it, which is chapter 8 of Song of Solomon from verse 1. I promise, again, it's going to be good. It's going to be G-rated. So Song of Solomon 8 from verse 1 says this, Oh, I wish you were my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. Then I could kiss you no matter who was watching and no one would criticize me. I'd bring you to my childhood home and there you would teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, my sweet pomegranate wine. Your left arm would be under my head and your right arm would embrace me. Come on. It's good, is it? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> what she's, There's nothing weird going on. There's nothing that shouldn't be happening here in her statement with, I wish you were like my brother. What's happening is in that culture, in that day and age, it wasn't acceptable for husband and wife to show public affection with their partner. And so what she's saying is, I wish that I could be your brother and you, I could be your sister and you could be my brother so that I could show you affection all the time. Because no one ever has an issue, and or even in that culture, no one had an issue with siblings showing affection. Little kids hold hands, they kiss, they do all that. No one had an issue with that. So what she's saying is, I want to be intimate with you. I want to be one with you. I want to be able to show my affection towards you like I would be able to if you were my sibling. She's saying, I want to be one with you. And it goes on from verse 4. She says, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. In, in week 4, we looked at this in detail talking about how to endure, how to go through being single, how to date, how to date in a way that keeps us pure, how to date in a way that reflects the glory of God, how to date in a way that honors God, that loves God. And so it goes on now, the, the young women of Jerusalem, which is a young woman's friends, pipe up from verse 5, and they say this, Who is sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? 
So Solomon's bride starts with saying this, I wish I could be intimate with you all the time like I could be if you were my sibling. And then gets to the point where the young women, her friends are saying, who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning in on her husband? The first point is this, enjoyed love is oneness. It creates oneness. It always pursues oneness. I like the picture of hanging on to someone's shoulder or elbow in that when my 90-something-year-old, 93-year-old grandmother turns up to our place, I'll grab her by the hand and walk her into our home because she's frail, she's struggling, she can't walk properly. My wife can walk properly, so I'm not at all referring Sage to that. But more the idea of, the whole idea of leaning on someone's arm is saying, I need you for something. I need to be able to gain strength from you, gain support from you. So I'm holding on to you. I'm clutching onto you because I need you in my life. We're never supposed to be lone rangers in life, full stop. Specifically, when it relates to marriage, we're definitely meant to, never meant to be lone rangers. It wasn't meant to be. Robert and Sage is meant to be Robert and Sage. We're not separate. We're not one and the other. We're both together. Genesis 2.18 says this. It says, It is not good for man to be alone. And this is what God says after he makes everything. After he's made man, he says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. I love that word if you go back into the original language, into the, into the Hebrew Helper. It means this, power to accomplish a task. That our spouse, the oneness that we're pursuing, enjoyed love that creates oneness is understanding that our spouse is the power to accomplish a task. I think specifically men struggle with this, but I believe women do as well. That I can do everything. Anything that I do in in this relationship or marriage, I can do it. And she will just be a helper for me that's going to relieve some of the pressure out of my life. I could do that just fine, but she'll relieve some of the pressure. A lot of us approach our relationships that way, just to alleviate some pressure. But if that's how we always approach our relationships, then we're missing a key fundamental fact. That our spouse, our partners, were never supposed to be someone that just... alleviates some pressure. They're actually someone that comes in, helps, pulls us out. They are power that we don't have to accomplish the task that is at hand. We're not meant to be doing life by ourselves. We're not meant to be doing marriage by ourselves, nor conflict, nor all the messy situations that come up in marriage. We're not meant to be doing it ourselves, but rather our spouse is given to us as the power to accomplish a task. I think one of the worst things that we've done historically in the church has been guilty of this it says man's up here woman's down here he has authority over her she's just a helper she's just down here she helps with some menial tasks it's not meant to be that at all but rather your wife men is a gift given to you so that you can now do with her what you couldn't do by yourself you know when you're working together as a team both of you when it comes to the point where you can do together what you couldn't do by yourself. That's the idea of a marriage. Specifically, we could even correlate it with friendships. Good, strong, healthy friendships will do the same thing. They'll enable one another to be able to do things together that you couldn't do by yourselves. I love it how it says that it's not good for man to be alone and I'll make a helper that is just right for him. And sometimes the question We can ask ourselves, or specifically the single people sometimes ask is this, well, how do I know if this is the right person? 
Obviously, you two have worked that out up the back. Even for some of us, even though we've been married, the same question pops into our heads. How do I know if this really is the right person? Several weeks ago, I, can't, I haven't got the whole story in front of me, but we talked about soulmates and where the idea of soulmate came from. And generally with that, am I looking at the right person? Am I going to marry the right person? It's the idea or the focus is around, is this person a soulmate? And I said in it, quite scared, but I still said this fact that I, and I'd say it again tonight, that I would nearly bet my life that not a single person here is married to their soulmate, nor everyone in here will be married to their soulmate. Scientifically, the research says that you would have to live one, like 10,000 lives to find your soulmate. It's basically impossible. And the idea of soulmate came from this place. It was Plato in about 300 BC coined the idea where he said that Zeus, the God, got angry and so stripped humanity in half, forcing people to wander the earth looking for their compatible part, hence the term, you complete me. And so we're, when we're looking at, is this person the right person? We're putting it in the idea of, is this person my soulmate? Is this person right for me? J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, and I'll quickly just paraphrase it. I won't read the whole thing like I did last time. Write a letter to his son on the death of his wife when she was 86, I think it was. And he basically said, I love your wife. I mean, your mother. So he wrote it to, sent it to his son. I'm not sure what I said a second ago, but you get the gist. He said, I loved your mother and I'll continue to love your mother. But the idea of romance is completely overrated and went to the, went to the point of saying that romance completely detaches us away from pursuing another person with the idea being that I'm trying to find that perfect compatible person that completes me. And he went on to say that it's ridiculous. It doesn't work. It doesn't exist. Romance is a novel idea, but it's not there. And he says, and he ends the letter saying this to his son. He says that I believe true love is this. The two people come together and the companions in shipwreck. It's ultimately, for those of you that are married will know this truth, that life is tumultuous. Life is not easy. Life is not a guarantee that it's going to be smooth sailing then I can guarantee you that it won't be smooth sailing. And at times you're going to feel like you're going to drown. But the idea is that the person that you married or that you're going to marry is your companion in shipwreck, the one that's going to continue to bring you afloat, the one that's going to continue to rescue you, drive down, try and bring you up, trying to walk through the storm together. Life's going to be tough, but the idea is that we walk through it together. So the question is for the dating people, how do you know if they are the right person for you? The answer will generally be found in that they're different to you. There'll be some core beliefs that you need to sit down and nut out and, and find out. Do they believe in God? If you believe in God, I suggest that they should believe in God. If they don't want kids at all, but you want 10 kids, there could be some contentions there. But aside from some things there, for the most part, if they're different to you, it's generally a sign that they're compatible with you. Because it's not going to be smooth sailing. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But if you both come together like companions in shipwreck trying to keep one another afloat, trying to fight to help one another, then life is generally going to be worked out. The reality is this. Your spouse is not perfect. And neither are you. But the idea is that we come together and we complement one another. So here's, some, here's a question that what I'd encourage you guys to do 
specifically the married people, is as you go home, ask your spouse this question. How can I be a better servant towards you? And the other one is this. Ask yourself, am I actively being a support to my spouse or am I just allowing life to roll on? The song continues from verse 5 with a young woman and she continues and says, I aroused you under the apple tree where your mother gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as a grave. It flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Second point is this, enjoyed love makes you off limits. In 2002, there was an online dating service that was created that was specifically targeted at married people and people in committed relationships. It's called Ashley Madison. And their catchphrase is this, life is short, have an affair. It's relatively a bizarre thought, but their catchphrase is this, life is short, have an affair. If you're married, have an affair. Did you say amen, David? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it would have been. <laughs> Life is short, have an affair. We get married specifically for the reason of this, to make a public declaration that I love you. I love this person. I want to spend the rest of my life with them. But it's also a public declaration saying that I am off limits and they are off limits. That's what a wedding ring is supposed to symbolize, that I'm off limits that I belong to someone, that someone belongs to me, that I'm owned by someone else, that I'm not public property. But the challenge is this, that whether we have a wedding ring or we've gone through a marriage, regardless of what it is, your marriage isn't tattooed on your body like an electric fence that zaps anyone that tries to touch you that isn't your spouse. Specifically with, with dating sites that even encourage and suggest that you have an affair mentions or gives at least the idea that it'd be truth to the matter is this, that it's your personal choice as to whether you remain off limits or not, that whether you close the door to anyone else or not. What we often do is we do this, we get married, but the door stays half open. In this, we're still flirtatious. We still act with people of the opposite sex, like we're free we still talk to them like we're free. We still lead them on like we're free. And the problem with this, what it does is, regardless of whether everything, anything is going to happen or not, it creates insecurity in our spouse. Love is supposed to be something that creates oneness. How we interact with other people is supposed to create security within our spouse. That they know that they are loved by us, that they are cherished by us. And regardless of what happens in life, they're going to be faithful to us. They're going to be there with us. In 2003, there was an interview with Billy and Ruth Graham, and one author described it this way. He said, he said, Billy will be 85 in November. He and his wife just celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. Neither of, them, neither of them is doing well at all as far as physically, but Billy said, we've discovered that we can continue our love affair at this age with our eyes. I love the thought that that presents that regardless of where we get to, our eyes can reflect something. How we look can, can reflect something towards our spouse. 
And if it's true that our eyes can reflect something towards our spouse, then the way we look at someone can reflect something towards them as well. The way we interact with people can reflect something towards them as well. An enjoyed marriage is one where both parties feel safe. And so for husbands, the way that you look at other women doesn't at all make your wife insecure. And for wives, the way that you look at other men doesn't make your husband feel insecure, but rather that the way we look and interact with people of the opposite sex is this. It's a way that instills in our spouse that we are off limits, that we are solely theirs, that we are solely for them. For some of us, what this looks like is, as far as opening that door, some of us just got that door open all the time and it leads to insecurity with our spouse. And some of us are in a more dangerous situation where It'll only happen behind closed doors where our friends don't see it or where our wives don't see it because it's fun, but we never intend to do anything. The problem is this. Sometimes when you open that door, it's too hard to retract from it. Someone can get the wrong idea. You can lead someone on. You can hurt someone. And then you can find yourself in a precarious situation. Truth is this, that when I'm 85 and Sage and I've been married for 60 years, I want my marriage to reflect the same as that of Billy and Ruth's where it says that maybe we can't do much physically, but my eyes are going to say as much as they can. I still want to continue a love affair with you. So here's the question for the married couple specifically. Do your actions reflect that of complete devotion to your spouse or do they reflect something else? And then the song goes on. And the, women's, the young woman's brothers, as far as Solomon's bride's brothers, speak up from this point. And it's the first time we hear any other... Um, people talking in the, in the song other than the, the three people we've heard so far. And they say this, We have a little sister, sister too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she is a virgin like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. But if she is promiscuous like a swinging door, we will block her with a cedar bar. The third point is this, that love is enjoyed. And this is Solomon's wife's brothers stating that their role in protecting their sister is important. They're watching over her is important, something that they value, something that they pursue, something that they treasure. And what they're saying is this, if she is a wall, wall being if her character is intact, if her character is pure, then we will protect her. And often when you look at it that way, the thought comes in, well, if she maintains her character, then I'll protect her. But if she doesn't, then I will let her go. But they don't say that at all. I love what they're saying. They're saying that if her wall, if her character is pure, then we will protect her. But if she's open to being seduced, then they will reinforce the door with the idea to keep her pure and to keep her holy because she is valuable to them. 1 Timothy 5.2 says this, to treat older women as you would your mother and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sister. In the Bible, before we're married, we're referred to as this, brothers and sisters. After marriage, we're referred to as husband and wife. I believe as parents, we've got a responsibility to steward how our kids date. I believe as grandparents, we've got the same responsibility. And that looks like parents of the faith, grandparents of the faith. But that also looks like brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got responsibility to protect one another. We've got responsibility to steward what someone else is doing to a point. So that means, or this would be the question, if you're dating, that you wouldn't do with that person that you would with your brother or sister. You would seek to protect them. 
We have a personal responsibility to protect one another. And this, I believe, is a value in community that we can come together, we can surround one another, we can love one another, and we can protect one another. Protection in dating looks like this. And I know some of this is repeating what we went over a couple of weeks ago. But this, there are private parts to a marriage, but there shouldn't be private moments to dating. In that when you're dating, you're not married. You're dating. You're getting to know them. You can have some private conversations with them to get to know them a little bit better. But the majority of your interaction with them is public. For the idea that you want to protect yourself. You want to protect them. You want to look after them. You don't want to put them in a dangerous position nor yourself in a precarious situation. You want to protect them like you would your brother and sister. The problem that we often run into when we're dating is this. We think dating is a marriage and we create private moments in it where this is just me and them time. It's never meant to be me and them time. You're still dating. You're still getting to know them. So the idea would be this. Keep your dating open, dating groups. Don't go into their bedroom. Don't go into a room by yourselves and shut the door. Don't go to their house when no one is home. Be deliberate in setting yourself up for a win while you're dating. And the other thing here would be, if you're a parent, be deliberate in sending your kids up for a win while they're dating. Verse 10 continues on. We'll keep reading. The young woman goes on and says, I was a virgin like a wall. Now my breasts are like towers. When my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. What she's saying is this, that I ran the race to marriage with purity up to this point. I've ran perfectly. I've not failed. I've not slipped up. I've kept myself pure for you. Word of caution here, or like just a slight segue. What we're not meaning to do, so I know not everyone is perfect, me included, and not everyone has ran a perfect race or a pure race. This isn't meant to be condemnation to say that, oh, if you didn't, you're a bad person, you're dirty, you're rotten, no one's going to find you attractive, no one's going to find you to be worthy to be a spouse. It's not meaning that at all, but rather she is stipulating what she did. For the others, that's what grace is for. That's what repentance is for. That's what forgiveness is for. So she is saying to her husband, or she's saying that her husband is delighted in her for how she looks, but also because she is his and she is only his. And that's why she says, my breasts are like towers. One commentator says it this way, her breasts are like treasure chests, being that they are valuable because she has kept them valuable. Because she's looked at them and said, these are a valuable asset that I want to keep for my husband. Something only remains valuable if the value is protected. If we don't protect the value, obviously it diminishes. So some ways to practically, for specifically the single people, to protect your value looks like this. Protect your bodies. It is becoming more and more of a normity to do this. When you get a boyfriend or girlfriend, you send them a naked picture. Hopefully this hasn't hit a chuki yet. It's becoming a normity for guys to ask girls this. That this is what you do when you're, when you're dating, when you're in a relationship. You send me either a naked or at least a provocative picture. And that will show me how much you love me. That will show me how much you care for me. My suggestion is this, girls, if a guy ever does that to you, my suggestion would be to dump him. Why? Because he's more interested in fulfilling his desires of lust than he is in protecting what's valuable to you. He's more interested in what he wants rather than supporting you and protecting you and keeping you. 
The other one is this, protect your friends. You protect your bodies, but we've also got friends and people that we're in relationship with. We can be deliberate in protecting our friends' bodies as well, and that looks like the same thing. Someone messages them, encourage them. Hey, I don't think that's a good thing. That's not on. Shouldn't do that. And the last one is this, choose your clothing. What I'm not doing is making a statement of what is acceptable and not acceptable to wear. That's a decision for you to make. But the truth is this, with our clothing, with what we wear, it will make a statement. It'll either say, come and get me, come and flirt with me, come and fantasize over me, come and annoy me, come and bug me, do all of that because I'm open for business or it'll say, I'm closed to business, but I'm open to get to know. Here's the question for you single people specifically. What value do you place on your bodies? What value do you place on your love? Is it open for any bidder or is it open specifically to the highest bidder? Highest bidder being obviously the person that you'd marry. And we'll keep reading from verse 11. And she goes on and says, Solomon has a vineyard at Balhamon, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a thousand pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. But my vineyard is mine to give, and Solomon need not pay a thousand pieces of silver, but I will give 200 pieces to those who care for its vines. She's politically saying that people have to pay for what they want to use, want and use, but Solomon doesn't need to pay for her. She freely gives himself to him for this point. And the last point is this. Enjoyed love is spouse-centered. It's focused on them. She's saying that I have fruits, I have gifts, I have talents that I can give to you, that you can use from me, that I can help you. So she's saying, I want to give something to you so I can benefit you, so you can benefit me. She's wanting to focus on Him. Love is only enjoyed through serving. It's through serving that someone feels loved. I know there's multiple ways of people feeling loved, but each of those ways will be an act of servanthood to outwork them. What happens sometimes in our marriages is this, the serving gets out of balance. And so one person is the only person doing any of the serving. And so that leads that person after a period of time not to feel loved, not to feel valued, not to feel connected with. One person feels extremely loved, the other person not valued. Now I know that in life, life is a balancing act. And so maybe this week that you're doing all the serving and next week that she's doing all the serving or however it is. But the idea is it doesn't stay out of balance, but it's always trying to come back to being neutral. Servant lovers give themselves to their spouse by making their spouse their first priority. Ephesians 5, 21 to 27 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot, wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And verse 33 ends it this way. Where he says again, so again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Marriage is this, it is serving first, happiness second. The point of marriage, the hard point and the struggle point is this, that we seek to serve our spouse, not to be served by them. Absolutely, there's going to be times we need to let them serve us. But the general gist of a marriage or a healthy marriage or a happy marriage is when two people come together wanting to serve one another. 
And I love it that that's what Ephesians illustrates. It illustrates two people coming together to submit one to one another. And then it illustrates what loving one another looks like and what respecting one another looks like. And so for the wives, it says, respect your husbands. And for the husbands, it says, love your wives. Both outwork in an act of having to serve, having to put the other person first, put their happiness first, put their desires first before your own. Generally, when we run into issues in our marriage, it's because we're putting me first instead of putting my spouse first. I think it was week two, we started with it like this. Marriage is for holiness, not happiness. And if marriage is all about making me happy, then it will become a selfish marriage where it's only about me and not about my spouse. Our marriages should be a pursuit of wanting to love on, serve, and be gracious towards our spouse. Love is a doing word. There's never supposed to be just simple words. It's meant to be demonstrated in actions, deliberate actions. The busier life gets and more deliberate, we need to be in carving out time for our spouse. And the last couple of verses end with it like this. Oh, my darling, this is a young man speaking. Oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. And the young woman ends it with this. Come away, my love, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. The song and the series ends with this thought. And I love it. Regardless of your age, regardless of how long you've been married, to pursue love like you were youth. Youth generally push the boundaries. Youth are generally out wanting to experience something new. Youth never stop. For those of you that have been married for a long time, you might remember, and I'd like to think you'd remember, back to when you got married or before you got married. You'd spend all night as just to spend time with them. You do whatever you could to spend time with them. But then after a while, the busyness of life takes root and they become second priority. Now the kids have got to go here, the work's got to have this, and this has got to have that, and everything starts piling on everything, and they're not the first priority anymore, but rather something else becomes the first priority, and we stop pursuing them like we would when we're dating. Here's the reality. You were a husband and wife before you were a mother or father. You chose to marry your spouse, you did not choose to marry your job. You chose to marry your spouse, not your hobbies and not your friends. And you left your family to be one with your spouse, not to bring your family into your marriage. I'd like to end with this thought, to go back to Billy and Ruth Graham. That I want, at the end of my life, when Sage and I have been married for 60 years, 65 years, 100 years, you're going to be an old woman, Sagey. Is this, that I want a marriage that when we can't even do anything anymore, that our eyes do it all. That we never stop pursuing one another just because of physical inability. That we always pursue them regardless of the cost. That we always make them priority. We always make them first. We always interact with them like they are number one because they are number one. We never use or lose that youthful side of marriage. How about everyone stand and I'll pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of marriage, Jesus. I thank you that our spouse is given to us, Father, to be the power to accomplish a task, Father, that we couldn't do without them, Jesus. And I pray that as husbands and wives, we're deliberate, Father, in wanting to, to serve our 
to serve our spouses in such a way that lifts them up, that elevates them, that loves them, that enables them to accomplish what they couldn't do without us, Father. Pray for the marriages that we have here, that throughout this series, Jesus, that the challenges that have been set forth, Father, I pray that people have been active and they're talking about it and communicating through it, Jesus, and they're growing out of it, Father. And I pray that they're being deliberate, Jesus, as they talk about it, to go off and pray about it, Jesus, and seek your counsel as well, to, to be deliberate in bringing you to the center of that, Jesus. I pray for the future marriages that come out of the, here, Father, that they are strengthened, Father, from the get-go, Jesus, that they start on solid ground, Jesus. I pray also for even just the friendships in this place, Father, with some of the examples of marriage that can be reflected back to them, God, that the friendships that we create in this place and in this community, Jesus, uh, focus on wanting to love one another and wanting to demonstrate your love through that. And I pray that as we go out tonight, Jesus, that we're deliberate, Jesus, for this next week and this next season and this next year in wanting to love and serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church.